going to be starting a new study through the book of Matthew, having finished the book of Daniel. And someone was asking me, well, how long do you think Matthew will take? And I said, well, one of my favorite preachers, John MacArthur, preached it in just a little over seven years. And, um, and they said, yeah, but you're not John MacArthur. I said, well, that's, that, that's, that's fair. So maybe if I can do it in half that time. I, I really don't know. Um, we will take it um, at a pace that will um, hopefully endear our hearts more towards Christ, to have a greater love for the Savior, a deeper understanding of His teachings, um, so that as we go out as His ambassadors, we can speak forth the glorious truths that He has given us. Amen. But this morning, we're going we're gonna to work at getting our way through Jesus' genealogy. That's our our goal this morning. But before we do that, um, a gospel is simply an account of good news. It's the euangelion in the Greek, just good news. Um, One of four gospels, Matthew, uh, and each of these gospels telling in their own account of this good news of Jesus, of his life, of his uh, death at the cross, of why he came to save and redeem sinful mankind back to himself. Each one of these Gospels, we have the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we refer to as synoptic Gospels, and that just simply means they're of a similar nature. The synoptics seem to tell the very similar stories. Um, And while being different um, in some of the details, it's nonetheless um, that any one is more... uh, perhaps uh, of greater value than the other, it's that all of these three pulled together give a fuller picture of the reality of this man and of his life, this God-man, and of the claims that he is making on people's lives. I've heard it said before that if you're perhaps standing at an intersection and you encounter an accident at an intersection, let's say you're on the northwest corner of this intersection when you see this accident, and then the you know, the people, the police making the report ask you for your eyewitness testimony of the event and you give it to them, it would be to nobody's surprise to find out that somebody on the, the uh, south uh, westerly corner who also saw the event perhaps gives an account that would be somewhat different from yours, though seeing the same cars, the same, the same people, just seeing it from a different angle and perhaps from a different perspective from himself. Because, you know, when accidents happen, they can kind of be a little startling. And so can you imagine uh, living life with the Son of God? You think, wow, he just turned water to wine. Wow, he, there would be some pretty startling things that were taking place. And so from Matthew's perspective, he writes an account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his story, this good news of Jesus. Um, we know from looking at the gospels that each of these authors... Um, have personal perspectives related to Jesus. Matthew is sometimes referred to as the gospel to the Jews or viewing Jesus as the sovereign king. Uh, Mark, Jesus viewed as a suffering servant. Luke, Jesus viewed as the son of man in the gospel of John, not one of the synoptics, but referred to just as a universal gospel as Jesus portrayed as the son of God. And while these categories are categorically true and they have a there's a there's a uh, contour within each of these gospels that we can see those strands of thought 
those strands of thinking woven through those Gospels, it by no means precludes that since Matthew was writing, let's say, primarily to a Jewish audience, that does not in any way preclude that Gentiles can't be partakers of this great gospel and feast upon it, and that Gentiles were in, weren't also intended to be readers and thus recipients of this gospel. We will see that clearly on several occasions when we make our way through the gospel of Matthew. So it's not an exclusive thing, and these contours, when they're, they're stated this way, are simply just that. They're just general um, observations that are made when studying through these Gospels. And we also can remind ourselves in the introduction that a Gospel, a Gospel is not a letter to a church. As we see the Apostle Paul writing 13 letters, Peter writing, um, so on and so forth, that they are presentations of who Jesus Christ is, who he claimed to be, what he did in his life on earth prior to crucifixion, what about the resurrection and then the ascension, what impact and implications his life has for all people, for both time and eternity. In each of these four Gospels, we find different details, different aspects of, the, of similar events, as I just mentioned None of that, however, lessens its impact on a global perspective. While it's not written to a church in particular, I like to think of the Gospels as being that which was written to every church in particular. People who are called out by the grace and mercy of God and put within the body of Christ. So in that regard, the Gospel is to go to all the world for the purpose of seeking and saving that which was lost, Jesus' mission and thus our great commission in the building and the forming and the very fabric of his church. And so while it's not a letter to the church at Ephesus or to the church at a particular location, it's to all of God's people telling what God requires for entrance into his glorious presence and what we need to know before we find out the hard way that it's been appointed unto man to die once and then comes judgment, that there is indeed grace and mercy at the cross. Amen? The Gospels let people everywhere know that God is a God of mercy, but that he's also a God of justice, a God of grace, but a God of great consequence as well. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. Matter of fact, he put on display, full display, his dissatisfaction with sin and what we even rehearse today in the partaking of these elements, with the death of his own son. So in studying Matthew in particular of those four Gospels, it does become clear that he has a particular audience in mind. And we might just refer to this audience as the Jews. Particular audience, not an exclusive audience, but a particular audience. However, it in no way, as I mentioned, precludes non-Jewish people, the likes of probably every one of us in this room this morning, from gaining insight and perspective, um, from having to deal with the cause of fidelity, that call of the Lordship of Christ, of following Him, of taking up our cross daily and following Him, whoever seeks to, to find his life will lose it, but he who loses it for his sake and for the gospel finds it. 
that, that, that call to fidelity of following Christ exclusively and taking up our cross and being like him and learning to be fishers for men is a very, um, is a very strong word that's not just for Jewish believers, but it's for the church, as I made mention, for all people and all time who come to him by faith. And one of the unique things about the Gospel of Matthew, in that Matthew, being a Jew, writing primarily, it seems, to Jews, is he uses upwards of 50 different analogies back to the Old Testament, showing how Jesus came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the one who is coming, coming to be their conquering Messiah King. And so in doing that, it, it roots his Gospel very deeply into Old Testament history and the typology that we'll see employed by Matthew as he brings it over into his gospel and relates it specifically to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah King. But Matthew also wrote, it seems, to be an encouragement to believers, and again, not exclusively, but particularly Jewish believers of his day. Um, when you think of the fact that Jesus was indeed um, their Messiah King, the recognition, if your hooves on the ground in that time and you're a Jew and you've had your spiritually blind eyes open to recognize that Jesus is Messiah King, you recognize that a horrible thing has occurred. That your people, your kinsmen, have crucified their own Messiah unwittingly. And so what now? We were anticipating that Jesus was going to come as David's conquering ruling king in his line and he was going to reestablish a kingdom. What how, how is God going to deal with this? What is God going to be doing about that now? And we see in Matthew's gospel towards the end, around chapters 24 and 25, in particular two whole chapters, and some kind of woven in throughout in other places where Jesus is teaching to his 12. Matthew in particular grabs hold of some of that, and he brings the teaching of Christ together in a very powerful way to let these Jewish believers know that God hasn't isn't finished with them yet, that he still has a plan for them, for their nation. And so there's so many unique um, contours through Matthew's gospel. I'm really excited and hope, hopeful that you too are excited with me as we begin this journey together. And as I said, it will be a journey. Um, this will probably be, since we've started here at Jinx Bible Church, the longest series that we have engaged in. And so I want, to be, I want to encourage you not to grow weary with perhaps the length of time that Matthew takes, but instead show up each week with a fresh perspective of trying to understand more of the writings about your precious Savior and more of the specific teaching that he brought to bear um, that was left with us and inscripturated for our benefit, okay? Because it's going to be a long journey, but the joy in the journey is what we're looking for, Amen more conformity into the image of this man, <coughs> Jesus, that this very gospel is telling us about and pointing us to. So this morning, in particular, we have one of the most juicy portions of all of the book of Matthew to deal with, his genealogy. Now, I thought perhaps I would bring my genealogy up here, and I do have one, by the way. It's in a mustard-colored folder. Hannah could attest to it. She's seen it. As a matter of fact, we've made copies of it. And I've actually even got a copy of it on my, on my cell phone here. I could just open it up and pull it up, Averett Genealogy, and I could start telling you some really fascinating things about my genealogy, one of which I'm really kind of proud of, so I'm, I shouldn't read it because, you know, I want to be humble behind 
a pulpit, but at any rate. Do, how many of you know about your genealogy? A few of you? Most of the hands I saw were of the older generation. The knowledge that I gleaned about my genealogy came from the, my predecessors in the Averett family. And they were faithful to do research and to pass that down. And as I got older, I started finding a greater interest in, in reading about genealogy. Now, there's really not a lot that's super, like, just amazing about them, right? You just kind of names. Now, in the one that my grandpa put together with some help with some other folks, he put some, they put a little um, description of some of these individuals. So when we, when we start reading, we're just going to get, was the father of, was the father of, the father of, so-and-so was the father of, and that person was the father of. So that can get a little bit tedious. So what I thought that we might do this morning is start off on a three-month excursion through every name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and exploiting every angle that we could come up with on every one of these personages. No. I'm kidding. I just, you know I have a, a tendency towards detail, right? But not on genealogies. We're going to kind of read probably most of this in larger chunks and I might say a few things about a few of them here or there. I'm going to say a few things about a few of them here or there, but uh, we're definitely not going to hit all of them. We're going to kind of take more of a bird's eye perspective, a higher view, focus in on the things. But I think in general, Matthew had one singular intent in writing this genealogy that we probably can know for certain, and that is the, the right lineage, the right establishment of this man, Jesus, the Messiah, as being the one who came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Okay? Now, there may be a few other songs that are written within this genealogy, and perhaps um, we will have time here within the next 20 minutes to touch on one of those perhaps songs, but I, I can't say definitively that it's that. But what's interesting is that there are... Um, there are five particular women mentioned within the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in reading a multitude of commentaries on Matthew, I tend to ask questions like, what might perhaps be the reason that they were there? What was the reason that they were given? I mean, we can go back and read their stories, and we can understand their stories rather quickly. But I came upon one commentary in particular that really just piqued my interest. And it's not, it's not something that's like right out of the scriptures, but I'm going to share it with you towards the end if we have time, that I thought that perhaps is one of the songs within this genealogy of Jesus Christ, other than what I mentioned previously, that's there just as a sweet reminder of how God's grace works through the mentioning of these women, and in particular, the meanings of their names. Why else perhaps would they be mentioned? We, we know Rahab, we can go and we say, okay, she did these things. But why perhaps within the genealogy would, they be, would these women be mentioned? Perhaps I stumbled upon it. I'm not going to you know, go to the grave over it. But nonetheless, let's, let's take a look at this genealogy. Are you ready? I think we are. Let's, let's give this a shot. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we see from the start that 
Jesus Christ is the main character, obviously, of Matthew's gospel. It's a record, and records are that which genealogies keep. It's a, it's a, he's, he's putting together a record of the lineage of Jesus, is what it's saying. And we see that he wastes no time in connecting Jesus and his genealogy back to two great covenants in Jewish history. We see he's the son of David, so we've got the Davidic covenant here mentioned. And then he goes back even further, and he goes back the son of Abraham. So again, we have both the Davidic covenant and we see the Abrahamic covenant mentioned right off the bat. And it's almost as if the rest of this genealogy is, rests on, the, on these covenants that are, are made mention of here, that through the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15, where God swore by himself that he was going to fulfill a promise to Abram. And that one of those particular promises was that through his seed there would come one who would be a blessing to the world. And Matthew is very simply, I think for almost any Jewish reader reading this, they would make the connection that Matthew is saying very explicitly that Jesus is in the record. He's in the lineage. He's one who could potentially, potentially, he's going to not say potentially, but possibly, not even possibly, but specifically be that one who came from Abraham that would be a blessing to the world. The Apostle Paul, as a matter of fact, picks up on the same theme from the writing of Genesis, I believe, in the book of Galatians. And he says, referring to a seed, and that seed was Christ. He gets very explicit. So we see this. And then with David, the, the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7, where God promised to David that David would always have someone from his line on the throne over the kingdom of Israel, ruling as king, that there would that David, from, from your lineage, from your line, there would be one that would come. So the Jewish nation has always been anticipating that their Messiah king was going to come from the line of David. Matthew is saying that in recording the lineage, the family heritage of Jesus, he is the son of David. He's in the right regal connection and lineage there. And he is also the son of Abraham. And so then he sets out to trace those things with greater detail. And as we're going to see when we get to verse 17, we see that Matthew breaks his genealogical writing here into three different categories, each of 14 generations. I'm going to get there in my slides, but for right now, just look in your scripture there at verse 17. Notice it says right there, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. And so the first section of this genealogy is going to go from Abraham to David. He says 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, again, 14 generations. And we'll see that section that's carved out there from David to the deportation. And then, and then in the last one, from the deportation of Bab from Babylon to Messiah, again, 14 generations. So you might imagine, um, while I was reading through different commentaries, looking for different little nuggets of gold, one of those I was looking for is what might someone have discovered with regard to these 14 generations? 14, 14, and 14. Our God is a God of order. Um, we just came through the book of Daniel, right? 70 weeks and all the, I mean, there's, there's some tight indications that Scripture gives us. And Matthew seems to be very particular here. And um, one of the simplest observations that I made in there, which, again, doesn't 
mean that this is exactly why Matthew did it, was an observation that David's name in Hebrew numerology somehow came out to the number of 14. I didn't quite figure that out, but I thought I would just drop that little nugget on you. And that perhaps that's why, because Jesus is the Messiah King, that perhaps would be the reason for the bracketing of 14 generations, 14 generations and 14 generations until the time of Messiah. I don't know if that's the case or not. I found that to be kind of fascinating just to be, pers- to be you know, uh, transparent with you. And again, so some of these things I may share with you regarding the genealogy like that one, um, don't rush out and try to build a, a, some kind of theology around it. Pastor Ben was talking about Hebrew numerology. Yeah. And this. No, just forget about that. Just take it as a little point of interest, perhaps. But we see that this is the case. So here at the first, we have the first breakdown of the 14 generations. Verse 2, where he picks back up with Abraham. From Abraham to David, the first little section of 14. Abraham was the father of Isaac. So if you remember, Isaac was Abraham's son who was um, the child of promise. He's somewhat of a miracle baby, um, not in the same way that Jesus was to Mary, but nonetheless a miracle baby in that Sarai was so far beyond uh, getting pregnant and, and giving birth um, that she even laughed whenever she heard the Lord tell Abram that this time next year you will, your wife Sarah will conceive and you will be with son. And she chuckled about it because she knew that it was physically impossible. So Isaac, right out the chute here, is one of these miracle babies, a supernatural birth, if you will, that perhaps is there to set the stage of somewhat of a, a, a more miraculous uh, birth for Mary when we get to verse 16, who also, if you remember, was pretty shocked when she discovered that she was going to be or was with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, those two are completely different. Abraham, in obedience to God, um, got together with his wife, and God miraculously enabled them to conceive. Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So Isaac is the son of Abraham, Abraham the father of Isaac. And then it goes from Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now listen to the, all the rest of chapter 2 from Jacob. You know who Jacob was, was the father of Judah and his brothers, and his brothers were the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see this is kind of where we, we recognize that Abraham's the father of the nation of Israel because he gave birth to Isaac and then Jacob, his brother Judah, and then the rest of the brothers. And so Jesus is of this lineage. Verse 3 And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Now perhaps you remember uh, the story of Tamar. And here we have the first mentioning of a lady that's mentioned by name within this genealogy. And again, most of it's just going to be Judah the father of so-and-so, Perez, Perez the father of, Hezron the father of. But occasionally a woman's name gets dropped in there. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So that's all we have to go off of is by Tamar. But what we know about Tamar was that Tamar in Genesis 38 uh, was Judah's daughter-in-law and she through an incestful, sinful act of Judah became impregnated with these twins, Perez and Zerah and became the mother of these two, and she is thus, in this way, inserted into the genealogy of Christ. And so this is perhaps why, when we get to the end, and we kind of look at these women and look at their names and kind of lay them out and see, does just their name alone, the Hebrew name alone, 
give any kind of story, tell any kind of story, or perhaps kind of this, this, uh, the singing of this poetic song through the genealogy that perhaps was embedded there by the Spirit of God, we will see when we get to the end. So that's Tamar. And then Ram, verse 4, Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon, verse 5, was the father of Boaz, so you kind of get back to a name you're somewhat familiar with, by Rahab, there we have the second woman mentioned. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, there's the third, and Obed the father of Jesse. So we have here the second and third woman mentioned, Rahab, verse 5, you know, was a prostitute who was spared when the people of God came in to the promised land, and she, she promised to hide them, and God granted her favor. We see that in Joshua chapter 2. And then Ruth, um, again here in verse 5, the third woman mentioned was a Moabitess, uh, the people of the Moabites were known to be sexually immoral people who at one time were forbidden even to come into the assembly of God's people. So the names of these women that are getting dropped in you, um, have some very interesting backgrounds indeed. Uh, Tamar enters into the lineage of Jesus Christ through sexual sin. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute known for sexual sin. The Moabites were people known for sexual sin. And so, again, there's something unique about the dropping of these names that perhaps is to tell us a story, even a broader story, when we get to the end regarding the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then at the very beginning of verse 6, we have the ending of this first gap of 14 generations. Jesse was the father of David, the king. And as Matthew, as we saw, started off with the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here's David, the king, who was born of Jesse. Um, David, obviously, as I made mention in 2 Samuel 7, was the great king of Israel. And again, as I've been making mention of these women, one of these um, women that's not mentioned by name explicitly, but we see implicitly mentioned in, in this next set here at the end of chapter 6, um, David, the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Well, I'm sorry, she is mentioned by explicit name there. We see that David, though, the great king of Israel, has something in common with some of these other names that are, that are mentioned here. It's a theme that I've made mention to you before of, of sometimes what we think of and refer to as the great names of the scripture. It's how God has this um, miraculous ability, because he's God, to strike straight licks with crooked sticks. And that's one of the very fascinating things that we see throughout the pages of Scripture is that God uses imperfect people, crooked sticks, to strike straight, li straight licks, to accomplish his purposes exactly as he ordained and decreed them to be accomplished, even unbeknownst to themselves. They were unwitting um, purviewers to the plan of God, just living life, I don't think Judah had in mind on his way up the road when he thought he saw a prostitute on the side of the road, which ended up in secret, Tamar, his daughter-in-law. I don't think he was thinking, oh, this must be in the plan of God. So I, 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 there, ergo, I must. He's just living life, trying to make life happen. Wrong, sinfully, but in that context of Crooked sticks, sinful people just trying to make life happen. God sovereignly is ordaining our days to accomplish 
his purpose, which is how Jesus Christ ultimately gets born of the Virgin Mary. And how God moved an entire nation and willed that to get Mary and Joseph moved. We'll get there when we get to Christmas. At any rate, it's one of the really fascinating themes that we do see. And David, nonetheless, is just like that. He is a man that's said to be a man after God's heart, right? And isn't that what we would all want men, to be known as a man after God's heart? But I can promise you, your woman, if you're married, if you're, if you're married to a man that wants to be like David, a man after God, she doesn't want you doing what David did in a lot of ways. And she would say, that's not a heart after God at all. Well, but the repentant part was, dear, well, okay, but I promise you it's not going to go well for you. And David's life didn't go well for him. He had lots of misery and heartache and sorrow through his children and in his life as a result of his sin. He was still a man after God's heart. He's the great psalmist, right? But that's one of the beautifully mysterious things of the Word of God. He uses crooked sticks and he strikes straight licks with them. And King David becomes the one that he makes a promise to that through your lineage there will be a king that will sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. And that's going to be Christ. Now in the second set, in the second portion of the genealogy, I realize, man, i got to speed up. I'm talking too much on some of these individuals. Notice verse 6b. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. So again, we've got a very... Um, adulterous situation he has Bathsheba's husband put to the front line and he's uh, killed and then he has an an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and Solomon is thus born but again Bathsheba is one of the names of the women mentioned here the fourth name of a woman here in the genealogy and perhaps their names will sing a song to us when we get to the end let's continue ah here we go here's a larger section Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Verse 8, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, verse 9, was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Verse 10, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And thus ends the second group of 14, that 14 generations, which, again, uh, would have, with, without any question, sparked the, ima- the imagination of, uh, and emotions of the stories that each one of these would bring to the minds of the Jewish readers who knew their Old Testament and knew the history of their people. Now, unfortunately, sometimes for us, we're loosely associated with the history of the Jewish people. And when we read these names, only until we get to some of the bigger names do we kind of have an emotional buy-in or an emotional pull, right? But imagine, if, if, if this was your history, this was your heritage, the law and the prophets have been passed down to you. Uh, many of those Jewish people were memorizing large chunks of the, the entire Torah itself, um, there was, there was a visceral ideology coming out of the Old Testament prophets where the Jewish people who had hooves on the ground were looking for and longing for a long-anticipated and expected Messiah King. 
So I can only imagine, I've tried to put my walk at least a few steps in their shoes and try to read through this and think, how must they have, have they been, would they have been feeling and the, the emotions that this conjured up within them that could this really be the one? This was the guy that just got crucified. And what a conflict in their imaginations. Here was a man doing things that only God definitively could have been doing and he claimed to be from God. But yet cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree and he hung on a tree. And so Matthew here is writing to rekindle for them a prescription of why this man was exactly who he claimed to be through names. And this would have meant a lot to them without question. Without question. Now the third set, this third set of 14 from verses 12 down through verse 16. Notice it says, after the deportation to Babylon. Did we spend some time on their time in Babylon or did we not? Yes, we did. Now, here's some time after the, after the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Verse 13, Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Verse 14, Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob. So again, we're starting to get closer to a time in history where we become a little bit more connected with the story, right? So when we get to verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Oh, here we are. Now we Gentiles, we're starting to really get connected again with the story. Joseph, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And just need to make the point here that perhaps you've heard before, but you need to be very particularly locked in on. Matthew goes off script here when mentioning Mary, the fifth woman here. When she's mentioned in the, in the genealogy, there's a very important shift or change that occurs in the way he writes. Uh, he previously had consistently been repeating the father of the father of, so-and-so, the father of, the father of, until it came to Mary. And it's at this point that Matthew changed and said, of whom was born Jesus. He did not follow that same pattern that he followed all the way up until this point. So this of whom in the Greek is a feminine relative pronoun, ex haste, clearly indicating that Jesus was the physical child of Mary, but that Joseph was not his physical father. This lets us know that Jesus, while tracing the genealogy of Jesus Christ, does so through his mother's lineage when it gets to this point in the genealogy, so as to be very clear that Jesus' birth was that of a miraculous conception. Of the Holy Spirit, Joseph had no paternity rights in the case. And you see that in the way Matthew writes this, in the Greek language that he uses to bring clarification to this, so that if someone were to try to say that Jesus truly wasn't the Son of God, that he's not of divine origin, Matthew's genealogy would be a place to go to completely contradict that. 
that he was conceived of the virgin, as it says right there following at the end of verse 16, by whom Jesus was born. Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The miraculous conception and birth are going to be explained in verses 18 and following. That's where we will put interest in the next time we get together. But all of these generations, from Abraham to David are 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon, the Messiah, 14 generations. So Matthew's genealogy answered the important question a Jew would rightly ask about anyone anyone who perhaps shows up on the scene claiming to be the king of the Jews. Is he a descendant of David through the rightful line of secession? Matthew clearly articulates for his Jewish brethren and for the rest of, the, of us who have interest and in, in look into this, he answers uh, without question, yes, Jesus fits the bill. Jesus is the Messiah King promised through David, who would rule as a king forever, and through that covenant and through the covenant with Abraham, that he would be a blessing to the entirety of the world. Amen? Now, I'm at my point, but y'all want to hear this real fast, okay? The names. And I'm not staking any claim on this, okay? I'm not going to say, man, let's build anything off of it. I just find it fascinating. It's perhaps one of those stories embedded within the scripture that these names were dropped just kind of paint somewhat of a picture with regard to the glorious nature of the gospel of this man Jesus. Tamar, name means palm tree. Palm tree. What, okay, what's Jesus got to do with the palm tree? Well, hey, he came right before Palm Sunday. No, not going to get into anything like that at all. Just the, the, the stability and the life-giving presence of a palm tree, perhaps, within that, within that region, uh, perhaps as a way of showing just the stabilization of life, the purpose of a wayward soul, a fountain of life, these kinds of things that Jesus did with people. He took dead men and made them alive again when they believed in his name. And again, I'm not trying to make a theology off this. I just thought thought that out of all the things I read, this one was probably one of the most fascinating. So I'm sharing it with you. I hope you're glad. Tamar. And then Rahab, her name means wide and broad. Wide and broad. How, think about how broad and how wide the love and grace of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. How, how amazingly wide and broad his love is that he extended his own son for the free forgiveness of sins to all who would come to him. Rahab, Ruth, a friend. If there was ever a friend of sinners, who would it have been? Jesus. His love for his friends was so deep that he willingly went to the cross and gave of, gave of himself in his life, and he demonstrated that by dying on, on the cross. A friend. Bathsheba, a daughter of complete satisfaction. Perhaps just referring to the soul's satisfaction, complete satisfaction that is found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the satisfier of the, series, uh, of the sinful, wearied human soul. And then Mary, their rebellion. 
And we think about the contrast with her name. I mean, she was one of, she was the complete antithesis of rebellion. She said, Lord, be it done unto me as you have said. Uh, Mary was a very uh, humbled girl who had a gentle soul and was willing to be used by God in whatever capacity the Lord wanted her. But God came to seek and save sinners who were rebellious against him. And Mary even at one point called out to, to her, the babe in her womb is my, my God and my Savior. Mary had a recognition that Jesus was the promised one from the Old Testament, and in particular because they had the advantage, did they not? Let's just be, they had the advantage that the angelic host showed up and gave them very direct communication with regard to this. The child conceived within you is of the Holy Spirit, and he will be the Son of God. So she had very specific insight, and she treasured that up in her heart. She recognized that she was a rebellion in rebellion against God and needed a Savior, as did the rest of the world. So perhaps whether it's uh, Tamar, the palm tree, Rahab, the broad and wide way of God's great love, Ruth, a friend, the great friend that Jesus was to sinners, to Bathsheba, the sense of a complete satisfaction, and to Mary, that he came to save sinners against their own rebellious hearts. Perhaps, I don't know, there's a song woven within the genealogy of Jesus Christ of what the purpose of the gospel was going to be, even within the names that were selected specifically by the Spirit of God for us to read. Perhaps. Well, here's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, it points out one thing without exception. Jesus is of the right lineage to be the Messiah King. And then Matthew sets out from that point to demonstrate it and prove it through the life of that man. And that's going to be the joy of our study and of our heart now for some time to come. How about we pray? Father, we thank you that 